It's my privilege to read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 8, and then I'm going to jump across to verse 32. How about I pray, and then I'll read. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Father, we want to pray that you'd help us now to uh, sit quietly under the authority and uh, the power and the grace and the wisdom of your word, and we pray that as we listen, we listen humbly. We ask that you'd uh, fill Gary with your spirit and help him to be an able, humble uh, teacher of your word to us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 4 and reading from verse 1. Now Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God of your ancestors is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor, but all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Then over to verse 32. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened, or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God, and besides him there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and by his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land to give it to you for your inheritance as it is today. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. Amen.
Thanks, Paul. Uh, please do have Deuteronomy 4 open in front of you. Uh, every so often, our kids, whom I love dearly, drive me nuts by saying something like, oh, I didn't realize they had electricity when you were a boy, or uh, you won't know how to do these. These are equations. Oh, Mrs. Warwick taught us how to do these today. It's part of the way we're wired, uh, unfortunately, that most of us do tend to think that everyone who was born before us was basically stupid. You know, after all, they didn't have, you know, Facebook, smartphones, iTunes. Our temptation is always to act as if our parents and grandparents were basically one step up from living in caves and whacking each other in the head with clubs. And sometimes that's exactly how we read the Bible. We don't mean to, but we read the Bible with the assumption that by the time we get to the New Testament and Jesus, then people had worked out what they were on about, and before that, everyone and everything was a bit clueless. But that's a big mistake. For right from the start of the Old Testament, our God made himself incredibly clear about what it means for people like us to live with him and for him and to delight in him and enjoy life with him. So when it comes to working out what place the gospel should have in our lives, what the impact of the gospel should be, what it means to be part of the people of God and how we should stay on track with him and the place that God's words should have in our lives, we could turn to the New Testament, but it's an equally good option to go right back to the beginning because God has been in the business of talking to people like us to show us what he is like and to meet with us through his word, and to give us life with him through this word from the very start. And nowhere is that more obvious than in the part of the Bible we're looking at this morning, Deuteronomy 4. In my humble opinion, Deuteronomy is the most grace-filled, life-inducing, life-changing book in the Old Testament, if not the whole Bible. And Deuteronomy 4 is probably the best chapter in Deuteronomy, so how good must that be? Well, we're about to find out. Because after Moses shows how important it is for us to face the past, our past, uh, to face our sin if we're going to live in a gospel-induced humility, then Moses moves on rapidly to talk about living for God in, in the right now, in the present. See, Deuteronomy 4 is about living for God this morning and this afternoon and tomorrow and through this week. And it's all about God's word. Anyone any idea how many times Moses uses the phrase, this day, in Deuteronomy? It's 167, in case you didn't know. And virtually every time he uses the phrase, he does it to urge people like us to make good decisions right now. And how do we make those good decisions? How do we make good choices? For Moses, the answer is startlingly simple. We make good choices by listening to the word of Yahweh. For all of us, church planters, coaches, students, apprentices, anyone else who slipped in, the key is listening to God speak to us through the gospel, that marvelous news of all that our God, Father, Son, and Spirit has done and is doing and will do for us. Listening to the words of God in the gospel is the key to making good choices right now, to making good choices as we talk to one another over morning tea, 
It's the key to making good choices, and that's what the Christian life is all about. See, there is a sense in which the past is gone. It's, it's over. We can learn from it. And the future, it's out of our control for who knows what the future will bring. But right now, we have concrete, specific choices to make. Do I decide to have a quick snooze right now in this pleasantly subdued lighting? Or do I hang in there and listen to the voice of God? Do I rest my tired feet on the back of the seat in front? Or do I think of the person who's sitting in the chair? Do I flick up Candy Crush on my phone pretending that it's a Bible app? Do I just sit looking quietly around, working out from people's haircuts, whether I fit into the Geneva crowd or not? Or do I pray that those people might hear the voice of God through his word too? Choices, choices, choices. Living for Jesus is a matter of making good choices from one moment to the next. And the problem is that people like us are very prone to making bad choices on the spur of the moment. Uh, That's very clear all the way through the Bible. Uh, Even at this point in the Old Testament, there's been a lot of bad decision making. Adam and Eve knew what to do and chose to do their own thing. Cain knew what to do and chose to do his own thing. Abraham wasn't beyond making stupid choices, particularly when it came to his wife. Isaac had a very impressive record of stupid decisions. In fact, for a man who doesn't get all that much space in the biblical narrative, he manages to fit a lot of bad decisions into a short space of time. Jacob was a chip off the old block, making bad decisions about having favorites and sleeping with prostitutes who just happened to be your daughter-in-law, to name just two. The Exodus generation turned bad decision-making into an art form, and they paid a heavy price for that. Now Moses speaks to a new generation. How are they to avoid simply repeating the mistakes of their parents? How are they to live well in this good God-given land? How can they hope to survive in this land without messing everything up? Moses' answer is Deuteronomy 4. And do notice that this isn't just advice for people who play a pivotal role in the unfolding of God's master plan. And I suggest none of us fall into that category, so it's a good idea. This is not just godliness for patriarchs 101. This is God's blueprint for his scattered people living in every part of this land. This is how to survive in every part of this good land of opportunity, the land that God is giving to his people as a a new Eden, a new place for his people to love and serve and enjoy and know him. And how are they to pull it off? It's all about God's word. It's not pushing it to say, it's all about the gospel, the gospel according to Moses. See, as I hope you'll see, there's a basic structure in this chapter which provides us with a framework for making sure we're soaked in, shaped by, driven by the gospel, particularly as we start new things, as we make things up as we go along in new situations. Now, of course, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus pours new content into this gospel-shaped mold. But God knew what he was doing and saying in this chapter. And the basic structure of how we're to live as God's people still remains. It still speaks as Moses talks about the vital importance of God's words. What does he say? Well, 4 verse 1, he says simply that listening to God's words is to be a way of life. Here's how this part of Moses' sermon opens. Hear now, O Israel, 
the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Hearing or listening, there's no distinction in Hebrew, to what God says is the key to living from this moment forward. It's the key to going into the land, to living in the land, to staying in the land. Moses wants to see that hearing God's words, listening to God's word is the way of life. And it's the key to making good choices. Every decision, every impulse, every idea needs to be shaped and corrected and directed by God himself as he speaks to us. Listening to God speak is to be an all-encompassing thing. If you want confirmation of that, you just need to flick on a page or so to Deuteronomy 6, which we'll look at tomorrow, where Moses says, These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Put them on your phone. Have them on your iPad. Stick post-it notes to the toilet door. Do whatever it takes. I don't really think Moses envisaged you know, people like making little boxes on their door frames. I think if you'd said, so how high up the door frame should be, don't be stupid, you know? It's a picture of a life that is saturated by God's word. Every morning as I drive into college, I pass about 30 or 40 runners at various points, most of them running along the bank of the Brisbane River. They've got one thing in common. Every single one of them has headphones on. I made a kind of project, you know, to try to spot someone with naked ears, you know. I've yet to find them. Because for, for them, for most of us now, like actually, music is a constant thing. You know, we listen to music when we walk, when we run, when we're in the car, when we're on the, in the office, we go shopping, whether we like it or not. You, you can't really avoid music. And Moses says this is the kind of saturation coverage that God's words should have. Why is this so important? In the context of Deuteronomy, we need to hear God's words if we are to have any hope of doing what he says. Because we're both slow learners and quick forgetters on the other. Our kids play musical instruments. That means we have a daily ritual of dragging each child to wherever their instrument is, step one getting them to assemble their instrument, if appropriate, step two. Finding them and taking them back to where their instrument is, step three. Getting them to open their music book and put it on the music stand, step four. I've got three girls, so for two of the three, getting them to stop brushing their hair and get back to their music stand and pick up their instrument. Then getting them to stop playing what's in their head and start playing what is actually on the notes on the page. Then repeat as necessary until the requisite time of music practice is over. Now, why do we do that? We know that if they're going to continue to learn and love their instruments, if they're going to get real joy in music and be able to serve other people through this, we've got to make them do it. Build it into their daily routine. We're creatures of habit and we need good habits. And as early as Deuteronomy, God tells us to make sure that listening to his words as he speaks to us through the Bible is part of our lives. One level doesn't really matter if we have a regular early morning quiet time, and spend two hours one day and 10 minutes the next or 10 minutes every third hour if that's our thing. 
But, but let's not make excuses. What does matter is that our lives are punctuated and saturated by God speaking into our lives through the gospel because we're slow learners and quick forgetters. Now, I know I'm in danger of preaching to the choir. You're here this week at a church plant and conference when you could be doing a thousand other things. But I do think that our generation is in danger of losing its way and making poor decisions because we have stopped soaking ourselves in God's word. It may be that we've moved beyond the legalism of a previous generation. It's probably true that we listen to more Bible talks than previous generations. My experience, it's certainly, it's almost certain that we were better taught than previous generations. But I suspect we are much worse at reading our Bibles than previous generations. And nothing can change the fact that if we're not getting saturation coverage from God's word, we are more likely to start making stupid decisions. In 2 Timothy, Paul says the weirdest thing to Timothy. He says, remember Jesus Christ in 2 Timothy 2 verse 8. I mean, why do you think he says that? Do you honestly think that Paul says, thinks that Timothy will wake up one morning and go, what's the name of that guy, the Nazareth guy, the one, the resurrection one? You know, I don't think that's Paul's point. But he does know that like the rest of us, Timothy will need to be reminded constantly of all that God has done for us in the Lord Jesus. That's essentially what Moses is saying. Hearing God's words, reminding ourselves of the gospel needs to be a way of life if we are to stay on track, especially when the pressure is off. I'm going to put this subtly. Church planters, Coaches, read your Bibles. I don't care whether you're kind of fresh out of college, raring to go, or you're kind of one of my peers. It just means when you're older, you can pretend more effectively. But it's very easy to be distracted from actually listening to God address us day by day. So why should you do it? Not because you're legalistic. Not because you're pious, but because you need it. And I'll be honest, if, if you don't get that, I don't want you to plant anything. I'm not really sure I even want you to look after my dog. I, I don't want you to be a pastor. Because if we haven't got the fact that God's words are to be a way of life for us, then we haven't got anything. Rant over, verse 2, here we come. Uh, 4, 2 to 4, listening to God's words is not just a way of life, it's, it's the way to survive. If we need any confirmation that for Moses this is a matter of life and death, a matter of survival, it comes in verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what Yahweh did about Al Peor, for Yahweh your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the, the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to Yahweh your God, who stuck to, cleaved to Yahweh your God, are all alive today. Listening to God's words is the only way to survive in the land. I have an old friend who used to be in the, uh, the SAS uh, in the UK. And every so often, you'd just be talking normally in some you know, obscure country would come up, you know, and, and Harry would say something like, oh yes, Borneo. I spent six weeks in the jungle in Borneo, once living off nuts and berries. Yes. Or, you know, oh yes, the Arctic. Ah, oh, the trick is to stay out of the way of the polar bears. You know, that kind of... He'd been trained to survive in the most inhospitable circumstances. 
I, wasn't, I was too scared to ask him what he was actually doing, hiding, waiting for people in the Borneo jungle, but that's another story. But, but for people like us, we need to be able to survive in just about the most toxic environment we can find ourselves in. What is that environment? It's comfort. It's harder to live for Jesus when it's easy. Over and over again in the history of the church, periods of growth under persecution have been followed by periods of decline when things get easier. A few years ago, a son of a Romanian pastor came to stay at our house. Uh, He'd spent most of his childhood waiting for his father to be released from a concentration camp or being imprisoned in the camp with his mother and his siblings alongside his father. He passed through our place just a few years after the fall of the dictator Ceausescu in Romania and the collapse of the Soviet bloc. And we sat chatting, you know, having coffee before we went to bed. And he just said, he said, you know what? It was easier back then. I said, being in a concentration camp was easier? He said, yes. He said, in those days, you knew you had to stand for Jesus. Now it's much tougher. He said, when things are easy, we need help surviving. We need help to keep going. We need help to handle money well, to cope with life in houses that we didn't build and trees we didn't plant, to cope with the corrosive lure of wealth. Moses says there's only one way to survive, and that's listening to God's words. Don Carson was in our, our, our house in Brisbane a couple of years ago, and he prayed a memorable prayer for our kids. He prayed that God would bring just the right mix of hardship and suffering and protection and ease into our girls' lives to help them grow as followers of Jesus. Initially, Fiona and I were a bit taken aback. Did the Don just pray that our girls would suffer? Yes, he did. How dare he? Well, because he's the Don. No, actually. (laughs) Because that's how God works in us to teach us that we need him. That's how God works to to teach us that we need what he says to survive. It'd be a good idea for us to file that away now. Because for some of you, you, you don't need encouragement to be desperate. You're in that blind panic stage of church planting. Will you seriously doubt if enough people are going to show up and enough people are going to be changed by God through the gospel for this thing ever to take off properly? For you, if you've got any sense at all, relying on God and his word now will not be difficult. Similarly, you know, I think for me, my least favorite thing about church planting is being the sending church. It, it's just, those of you who are church planters, just spare, spare a thought for, for anyone who is sending you. The worst feeling in the world is the week after you've said goodbye to the new church plant. Because unless you're a really big church, you stand up the next week and you go, I have ripped the guts out of my church. I will go down in history as the one who killed the mother church to plant another one. As the draft whistles through the empty seats and you're the guy at the front trying to keep up all that positivity that you built up for the five years, saying church planning is what we must do for the sake of the gospel. You're standing there in front of this empty church going, oh, what have I done? It's not actually hard at that moment to cling to God because you just go, Lord, oh, please fix this. (laughs) Please grow this church again through the gospel, which God almost invariably does. 
What's hard is when it fills up again. What's hard is when you've got your, your kind of, you've reached critical mass. That's when we need to listen to God's word to, to, uh, to survive. In 4, 5 to 8, then, Moses goes on to say that listening to God's word actually leads to attractive obedience. See, after making clear that listening to God's words is the lifestyle which allows us to survive the unexpected challenges of an easy life, Moses also points out that listening to God's words leads to attractive obedience. Verse 6, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is that as a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is near to us whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Moses describes a situation in which the nations round about see Israel obeying God and say, wow, you've really got life together. What a beautiful life. What a great God you must have. Moses envisages a day when people are drawn to Israel because they are doing what God tells them to do. See, listening to God's words is the engine of attractive obedience. Now, please don't misunderstand Moses here. He is not saying that rather than speaking about God, we should show we are Christians by our love. He's not saying anything like that. But he is insisting that if we listen to God's words ourselves, And as a result, if we are radically, wholeheartedly, consistently obedient, which of course will include proclaiming Jesus and loving outsiders, then people will be drawn to us. We'll be an attracting and an attractive community. But this will only happen if we have God's words at the heart of what we do. If we don't, then the engine will very quickly grind to a standstill. Time for a hard question for us. How attractive is my life just now? How attractive is our family life to people on the outside with all its mess and brokenness? What about our church family life? How attractive do you think it is? If it isn't attractive, here's the way to fix it. It's not to change the music, although that may be drastically needed. It's not to sort out the welcome at the door, although that's important. It's to make sure that as a community, we are listening to and doing God's words. Now, I don't know know about you, but I find obedience really very difficult. There can be all kinds of reasons why I don't obey. Could be all kinds of reasons why I might be a rubbish husband or a grumpy dad. There could be all kinds of reasons why I might say dumb things and make bad decisions. But if I'm not living a life marked by attractive obedience, the most likely cause is simply that I am not listening to God speak through his word. Because that's the engine. That's why I need to pay attention to what God says in the Bible. That's why I need people to teach me the Bible. I need all the help I can get because... If I don't get it, I run out of steam very quickly. Then in 4, 10 to 14, listening to God's words is the way to see God. Moses knew that hearing is the new seeing, if I can put it like that. 
Listen to these words from verse 10. On the day you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, Yahweh said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach your children so. And you came and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice cross in chapter 5 verse 4 Moses fleshes this out a little Yahweh spoke to you face to face at the mountain out of the words out of the midst of the fire for a while I stood between Yahweh and you at that time to declare to you the word of Yahweh for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up the mountain but verse 23 as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of darkness While the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we've heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now what's Moses' point here? Moses is saying that if people want to see God's glory, then what are our options? How can this happen? Clearly, we can't cope with a full dose that would kill us, but we can hear God's voice. And it is in listening to God's words that we get to experience the reality of his glory. Listening to God's voice is how he reveals himself to us. Moses had had a personal lesson on this back in Exodus 33. Moses wants to see God's glory. And what does he get? He gets to hear the voice of God. The same thing happens with Elijah. How does God show Elijah his glory? By calling him out of the cave and speaking to him. Do you want to see God's glory? Do you want to taste something of the the majesty and the power of God? Do you want to taste and see that God is good? I hope you do. I do, when I gather with God's people, whether I'm standing at the front or sitting down the back, I want it to be an encounter with the living God. I want to gasp. I want other people to gasp and be moved and be changed. And how does this happen? Moses says it happens when God speaks. Big church, small church. Traditional or modern. Church plant or ancient. Huge band, creaky old organ doesn't really matter. But when someone opens up the Bible and God addresses his people through his word, we see his glory. For hearing is the new seeing. Probably the most formative experience of our Christian lives was being part of a a small Church of Scotland fellowship in Aberdeen right in the north of Scotland. The church was years ahead of its time in that the traditional building had been transformed into a kind of open, comfortable space with rows of chairs. But apart from that, the service was deeply traditional. Four hymns, or sometimes three hymns, and two Scottish metrical psalms from an old blue Presbyterian hymn book. The whole thing led by one person. No other participation apart from the notices, which they called quaintly the intimations at the start of the service. A 40-minute sermon most of the time. 
No concession or particular explanation from the outsider. Barely a nod in the direction of special events. The minister was 78. The introduction to his talk consisted of him going, 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 7. And he would finish, and the next week it would be 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. But people came to that church and were regularly converted and drawn to Christ. Missionally, missionally, almost everything about it was wrong. Okay? But when the Bible was opened up, and as God's people prayed for the impact of that both before and after, you could not come to that church and not be struck by the fact that God was there. That he showed up, that he revealed himself through the preaching of his word. That's what people who weren't Christians said, as, as well as those who were part of the church. Now, I'm not excusing lack of thoughtfulness or you know, lack of engagement. But Moses says this is the core of the matter. This is what we should expect when we get together and the Bible is opened up. Doesn't matter whether you're doing it in a shop front somewhere or a Gothic cathedral. God reveals himself, shows himself to us. Meeting together as God's people isn't just about disseminating information. It's not even just about encouraging one another, which is clearly part of the purpose of the gathering. But when the Bible is explained, God reveals himself to us through his word. So isn't that why John calls Jesus the word of God in the New Testament? Isn't it when, why when Jesus shows up, John could say, we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. When God speaks through his son, we see his glory. Now when we hear the message of Jesus explained, we hear the voice of God, we meet with him, we get to taste and see that our God is good and glorious. That's why we have the Bible at the center of the life of our families and our church families. Not because we're bibliophiles, but because we're lovers of God. And where God is concerned, hearing is the new seeing. Still with me? Moses isn't quite finished yet, 4.15 to 20. He points out something that he's already touched on. Listening to God's words is the antidote to idolatry. Verse 15, therefore watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form in the day that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, animal, winged bird, stuff that creeps in the ground, fish, I don't think there are very many fish idols, but, you know, possibilities there. Verse 19, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all hosts of heaven be drawn away to bow down to them and serve them, things that Yahweh your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Our God is a talking God. He's not as the Old Testament loves to, to caricature any alternatives as dumb idols. See, the fact that God talks should be more than enough to remind us that we can't ignore him or sideline him or silence him. The fact that God talks and continually underlines the fact that he is the Lord of heaven and earth and that he has rescued us and that we are his, part of his family, his people, his kingdom. 
that speaking is God's protection against our being sucked into worshiping the wrong things. I don't know if you realize it, but if we're going to sin, it's our standard tactic to silence God first. We either stop reading the Bible or stop showing up in church if we have the option. Or if we want to maintain appearances, we keep rocking up. We just make very sure not to listen and engage. Because when God is speaking to us, we are confronted with the fact that we are not the center of the universe. That selfishness is not okay. That adultery is not okay. That greed is not okay. That living to enjoy sport is not okay. That living to control other people is not okay. We are very sinful. And left to ourselves, we can easily convince ourselves that all these things are right and good. As we've seen already over these days, the human art is so slippery that even after we become Christians, we are so adept at justifying sin, at pretending that idolatry, worshiping anything other than God is just fine. But we can only do that if we silence God first. Otherwise, God will keep sticking his omniscient nose into our business. Unless we silence him, our God will not allow us to wander off without confronting us what we're doing with what we're doing. See, in the Bible, the only anti-idolatry coating that works is regular exposure to the words of God. And we need it because in the words of verse 24, Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Which is Moses' neat segue to the fact that listening to God's words in verses 25 to 31 is also the way back from disobedience. Of course, Moses is a realist. Spending 40 years in the wilderness with the crowd that he was with would produce realism in anyone. Moses fully expected them to mess it up and get it wrong, which I think comes as an enormous relief. But Moses also wants them to know what to do when they mess up. I confess I am a walking practical disaster. Uh, I'm not so much into DIY as BIY. Break it yourself and then have to pay someone to come and fix the damage that you've done in trying to repair the thing in the first place. Now, over the years, you know, if I can say this humbly, I've become slightly better at my wife's insistence, has to be said, at avoiding step one and just going straight to step two, getting somebody else to do it properly in the first place. However, if I am tempted to inflict some extra damage on our property, I'm now very well practiced in knowing who to call to come and fix it. Moses says we need to know up front what to do when we get it wrong, because we will. So look at what he says from verse 26. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will muck it up completely. You will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in number among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. There you'll serve gods of wood and stone, work of human hands and so on. But if from there you seek Yahweh your God, you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in tribulation, when all this stuff comes on you, you'll return to Yahweh your God and listen to his voice. For Yahweh your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget your co- the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Some scholars say that's clear evidence uh, that, that uh, Deuteronomy's exilic 
because Moses says the people of God are going to muck it up when they went into the land. I just want to say, have you read anything that happened before that point? Moses says, I know you. I'll live with you. I know you're not going to be able to pull this off. I don't, don't even think he needs to be a prophet to say that. He just needs to think back what the past 40 years have been like. But he says, what happens when you muck it up as you will? Well, if we're sitting here today knowing that either blatantly or quietly, we've been living a double life, knowing that we have slipped into selfishness or idolatry or or sexual pride or all of the above, what should we do? What's the answer? If you know that you've deftly tiptoed your way through the assessment process, not being entirely true to yourself, what should you do? I am convinced that being able to fall well is a much underestimated skill. If we're Christians, we are not perfect. We are just forgiven sinners. We're acquitted, but we're not fully transformed. So we need to know how to avoid plunging into the depths of despair, wallowing in self-pity and beating ourselves up when we face our sin. We need to know how to repent. And that's where the Old Testament comes into its own. It's a brilliant new book. It's just been released by IVP, by Mark Boda, in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series on a biblical theology of repentance. Just started. so helpful. Get that and read it or put it on that shelf that I used to have in Dublin. But, but what do we need to do? We need to return to Yahweh. We need to stop running away from God and start limping, walking, or running back towards him. That's the picture Moses paints. And why do we do that? Well, how do we do that? Verse 30, we come back to God and start listening to him again. Repentance is basically taking our fingers out of our ears so that we can hear the voice of God again. It's incredible, really, that we would try to block out God. But that's what we do. Because we are very stupid. But when we take our fingers out of our ears, what do we hear? We hear words of mercy, verse 31. For Yahweh, your God, is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Not recrimination. Not, okay, you're going to have one more chance. Not, I can't believe you've done that again. Words of mercy. Listening to God's words is the way back from disobedience. And one more from 32 to 36. Listening to God's words is the way that we're changed. Would you like to be more attractive? What would you fix about yourself? You know, I could quite happily swap these ears for something with a bit less character, you know, or or my nose for something with just a bit less strength, you know. But but actually, the the stuff that I really want to change is in here. I'd love to see transformation in my motives, my determination, my willpower, my delivery. I want to deliver on being a good husband and dad, a good son, a good friend. And a half-decent college principal would be nice. But how's that going to happen? It can only happen when I listen to God's words. 
because only hearing God's words have the power to change us. And after reminding us of the gospel-shaped way in which God works in 32 to 34, that's what Moses says in verse 35. You were shown these things so that you might know that Yahweh is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. God's words actually have an effect. God doesn't just speak to convey information. He speaks to change behavior. We were in Dublin for 12 years. Uh, towards the end, before we left, it, it's a weird time, you know, that you kind of tried to set everything up really well for, your, for leaving and for the next guy. And then you suddenly discover you haven't really got anything to do because, you know, most of what you'd be doing is planning for the time after you'll be left. So I, I spent a happy few minutes one day working out how many words I'd spoken from the pulpit uh, in our church. I reckon I'd preached 700 times, said about two and a half million words when preaching there. That's a lot of words. I would hope that, you know, with two and a half million goes, I did manage to say some things that were helpful over the time. But over the years, I've become very aware of one thing. It's God who changes people and he does it through his own words. That's where the power lies, in the word of God. Paul had this one nailed, which is why he says to Timothy, and he's not just formulating the doctrine of inspiration. He's talking about God's power to change people through his word. All scripture is breathed out by God and brings enormous benefit to people through teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's saying God does this through his word, which is exactly what Moses was saying. Let's never, ever lose sight of this one. Now, this chapter is, is so rich. You know, we've left a lot out on the way through. But I hope you can begin to see that even here in Deuteronomy 4, it's crystal clear what an important issue it is listening to the God who talks. This is not theoretical. It's not just about dotting a few theological I's and crossing some T's. Listening to God's words is the way to life. It's a matter of life and death. Look at how Moses sums it up in verse 39. Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I'm giving you today so that you may go, it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God gives you for all time. The other end of the book in chapter 30, he says it again. 30 verse 19, Moses says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. See, this is the way to live. This is the way to enjoy life. This is the way to God. It all hinges on listening to our talking God. If you need confirmation of this, then all you need to do is turn to that strange event in Luke 9 we call the transfiguration. Suddenly, Peter, James, and John find themselves with Moses and Elijah, two other guys who met with God on a mountain. Two men who had heard God speak on a mountain. And what happens next? 
as they glimpse Jesus in all his splendor, a voice from heaven says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. That's our first responsibility, to listen to the one whom we love and serve. How do we do that? By reading and thinking about and taking on board these words which are passed on to us, the words of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, which we have in the Bible. I do wonder if James, Jesus' brother, had the chance to talk this over with Jesus. Perhaps he'd just been reading Deuteronomy 4. Either way, he sums it up for us brilliantly. My dear brothers, he says, James 1.22, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. We need to listen to God's words as a way of life, instinctively, constantly, because this is the only way to attractive obedience. It's the only way to see God's glory. It's the only way to be changed. It's the only way back from disobedience. It's the only way to life. So as we plant churches, lead churches, as we serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in any way that he calls us to, may our speaking God help us to listen to Amen.